0: Welcome home. This is Audio EXP for the 28th of November 2020, and the title of this episode is Savage Pathfinder. Wizards of the Coast was not sued this week. It has been one week since legal action was taken against Wizards of the Coast. I'm referring, of course, to the recent news covered in the previous podcast that Gale Force 9 has filed court papers against Wizards of the Coast. DD's owner seems to be using tactics. To thwart Gale Force 9 that feel a bit similar to the ones that they used to stop the next trilogy of Dragonlance books. We hopefully won't need to begin each episode of Audio EXP with a count of legal cases against Wizards of the Coast, but I wanted to mention it again, not just because it's somewhat worrying news, but because I'm still seeing the news spark discussions and predictions about D 6 edition. Is it around the corner? Last week as you might recall. I stuck my neck out and said I did not see D&D 6E becoming a reality for a good few years. At the time, I cited just how many forthcoming D&D 5E computer games Hasbro had been investing big money into. Well, I was beginning to doubt myself. So many people kept on talking about D&D 6E. Why else, they argued, would Wizards of the Ghost attempt such a drastic raft of contractual changes. However, Jeremy Crawford, D&D 5e's lead designer, told Dicebreaker something that reassured me that my timeline projection was right. Crawford said it would take several years to fully implement the changes to how D&D tackles races. So that's at least several years of D&D 5e then, right? And perhaps that new approach on dealing with fantasy races might manifest as D&D 6E, it certainly would be a significant enough change to warrant it. It seems unlikely that Wizards of the Coast would publish D&D 6E in 2021 if they think they'll be tinkering with races for years afterwards. Anyway, that's what I think. What do you think? The weird stats I have for you this week seems to suggest that when it comes to thinking about the future, geeks are a little bit more optimistic than non-geeks. In September, I had a copy of a Gears of War novel to give away, so I did the usual thing of running a poll competition. Answer the question to enter and the question was, do you think there will be a world war in your lifetime? On average, 57% of people don't think there will be a world war in their lifetime. I wish that figure was higher. It is a little higher for geeks. When people made their world war prediction in the competition, they also had to say whether they considered themselves to be a geek or not. And 59% of these self-identified geeks didn't think there would be a world war in their lifetime. That's not the first time I've seen geeks be a bit brighter about the future than non-geeks. Recently, and maybe you caught the audio EXP when we discussed this, geeks were also less likely to predict a cyberpunk future for us in the next 20 years. Well... Since we've found ourselves on slightly morbid topics, let's stick with it for a bit and talk about Onyx Equinox and a forthcoming anime called Killing Me, Killing You. Onyx Equinox is a new Crunchyroll anime, in English, from a Powerpuff Girls storyboarded designer called Sophie Alexander. Now, the show starts off with no shortage of death. An underworld god, impatient with the lack of blood sacrifices from the Aztec above, rises up to attack a whole city. Now, let's not use the phrase good gods. Let's just say that in response, rival gods decides to seal the gates of the underworld and, you know, probably erase humanity as a failed experiment and start again. Now, I'm looking forward to watching the next episode, but I'm far from decided on the show. The build-up was pretty brutal, but can the show stick with that tone for the duration? As you might predict, There's a young lad picked by one of the gods to be humanity's agent. It'll be up to him to seal the underworld gates and, well, if he can do it in time, then perhaps there'll be no need to erase the species from the planet after all. I think we'll find out in just a few weeks, as Crunchyroll is releasing one episode at a time. Killing Me, Killing You looks to be very different. It is based on the manga of the same name, by Imushi Narita, and I'm sure I've just butchered that name, sorry. The anime has my attention because Narita was told her manga wasn't selling well enough and it was likely to be cancelled. In response, Narita animated her own proof of concept trailer for an anime based on it and here we are, about a year later, and with the longer trailer and an anime on the way. I think Narita is still heavily involved personally, although I hope she's getting some help with the gigantic task too. Killing Me, Killing You follows two unlikely-looking characters who are trying to die. One is a young-seeming woman with a purple horn called Miti, and the other is, well, a strange shape in a coat called Euthanasia. They're both immortal, and they have been since meteorites fell to Earth. Now, they wander together to find something that will free them. This immortality. There's no confirmation of a streaming platform like Crunchyroll or Funimation picking up the show, but I hope they do. Also, in the spirit of killing things, this week's genre police RPG tips article from Ben is all about combat and combat in DD in particular. It's proven to be a popular genre police article. Ben's argument is that DD 5e oversimplifies combat. Therefore, DMs need to work a little harder to keep players' attention during melees, and he has some techniques on how to do that. My favourite was the idea of each combat round having some physical effect on the landscape that might matter to the players later. A fight in a tomb could end up destroying rickety stairs, or a wall to uncover a previously unexplored space, for example. So if you're running a lot of combat online, then this week has been especially good for you, with some great virtual tabletop news. First up, there's Owlbear Rodeo, which is a free-to-use website that, at a click of a button, creates a virtual tabletop for you. It comes complete with maps, tokens, and even a fog-of-war system. You add a password to your room, and then invite your players to it. So if you need to quickly flip over to tokens because a skirmish is getting far too tactical for the theatre of the mind, then Owlbear Rodeo looks to be perfect. The virtual tabletop and gaming community Roll also opened in early access this week. That means it's open to everyone, but just not in its final form. In addition to being a virtual tabletop, Roll is a marketplace for premium RPG products that integrate into its platform and a community to help you find other gamers. It raised $100,000 in a Kickstarter campaign, so I'm glad it's got this far. In a third bit of virtual tabletop news, Mythic Table also launched this week. Mythic Table is also free to use and it promises to be free to use forever and never to gate features behind a paywall. In fact, Mythic Table is a not-for-profit and the code is open source. I also wanted to mention Square One. It's not a virtual tabletop, not really. It's an electronic screen which acts as a board game surface and it comes with a dice reader. The Kickstarter project for Square One has raised €150,000 and it's still going. Now, we've talked about how before there's a bit of a race to invent the Netflix of board games and how that's attracting attention from some pretty savvy investors. And I'm citing Square One as another example. And finally, as we talk about savvy moves, we can get onto the headline news, which isn't quite the last bit of news in this week's show. Savage Worlds is coming to Pathfinder. That's right, you will be able to use Savage Worlds rules to explore Galarian and to run through all six adventure paths of Rise of the Runelords. Aren't Pazio and Pinnacle rivals? What's going on? Well, I think the deal makes sense. Savage Worlds is designed to be an engine that powers other RPGs, and so Pinnacle has every reason to want the Pathfinder fanbase introduced to it. Equally, for Pasio, it means more gamers interested in the world that they created and in its adventures than before. And for both publishers, it's an anyone but d and tactic. I think, I speculate, that virtual tabletops also factor in here. Let me explain why. In Scott Thorne's ICV2 article, Rolling for Initiative on the 22nd, the game store owner begins that saying, Tasha's Cauldron of Everything sold well. Thorne states that player accessories usually outsell DM accessories by a factor of 10 to 1, and he calls on Wizards of the Coast to release more. I mean, I get the logic, don't you? Players and DMs both want to buy Tasha's Cauldron, but only DMs are interested in pre-written adventures and the like. Equally, you have DMs like me who make up their own adventures and never turn to publishers to buy them. However... Virtual tabletops sell adventures with maps and tokens and rules integrations that need to buy a pre-written adventure if you're using a virtual tabletop is higher than if you don't. In other words, I'm trying to argue that virtual tabletops are helping publishers make more money from pre-written adventures. Ergo, taking some already written Pathfinder adventure paths and plugging in Savage Worlds gives Pinnacle and Pasio a new revenue source. Savage Pathfinder means Savage Pathfinder virtual tabletop modules. I think that's what Pinnacle and Palladium Books saw with Savage Rifts. And there are two more bits of RPG news for you, two new books to be aware of. First up, there's Blackbirds, a grim dark fantasy that I got a shout out on Twitter from actor Joe Manjuinli. Blackbirds is going to be a Zoohander powered RPG focus game, but you won't need Zoohander to use the game. Despite having a storytelling focus, rather than, say, a hex crawl, it will be a deadly game because, yes, it still uses a zoo hander. Lastly, Swedish publisher Blackfisk Forlag have a free-to-download playtest rule set for a game called Bloodfeud. Bloodfeud is an RPG about Vikings, about power, about honour and toxic masculinity. Now, when some people saw that headline, they assumed that Bloodfeud had some sort of alt-right leaning. It's the opposite. Blood Feud shows that toxic masculinity is bad. You see, in the game, as a Viking man, you'll have your honour challenged. And to protect it, not to lose power, you'll have to respond in that aggressively masculine way that the culture expects. And that'll cost you, but you'll have no choice. You can either lose power, influence, and earn the ridicule of society, or you can harm yourself and those near you with your constant acts of toxic masculinity. But it's early days for the publisher and the game so let's see where it goes and let's wrap it there keep safe stay out of melee range and see you next week